I've got a green light. There we go. Shift gears. I can't believe in Jesus because I'm a zoologist. That's what he said to me. It was after a Bible study one night. We were chatting over dessert. Eric, my friend Eric, he seemed intrigued by Jesus. He had started coming to church with his wife. He'd even plugged into a Bible study. He loved the friendship. He was smart. He was inquisitive. He was super likable. He really enjoyed the discussions. He was digging in to the stories of Jesus. But he had this hang-up about science and faith, an obstacle that I was just discovering. Oh, I says to him, uh, could you tell me more? And so, and so we did. Eric went on to describe his love for the natural world, his passion for science, his desire to have integrity in his research. His eyes just lit up when he talked about the intricacies and the beauty of creation and how much more we had to learn as we grew in our understanding of the world. But he just recently run into some Christians who didn't think much of his science. In fact, they ridiculed his work to his face. It informed him that it was all garbage and it was all contrary to true Christianity. And he had felt belittled, he felt shamed, and he obviously felt defensive, and I don't blame him. He was told under no circumstances that he would have to reject everything he'd learned in order to follow Jesus. And Eric was unwilling to do that. It wasn't that he rejected God's hand in creation. It wasn't that he found something about Jesus that he objected to. In fact, he wanted to find out more about Jesus But he was told he wasn't allowed to do that unless he changed his ideas about science first. Eric had stumbled across a very common obstacle to faith, one that's been popularized for around 150 years. This idea that science and faith are somehow incompatible, somehow at war with each other. That if I believe in science, I need to reject faith. And if I hold to faith, I need to renounce science. That somehow that the cross and the laboratory can't coexist, let alone be a benefit to each other. What an incredible obstacle of faith to Jesus that was facing Eric. And it's this obstacle that we're exploring today. We're right into a fall series. I know you probably came for a Thanksgiving you know, talk, but uh, we just started a series here that I'm really excited about. A series called Obstacles to Faith where we're exploring various common obstacles which prevent people, your friends, my friends, your family, my family, maybe your high school mates and Well, I don't have any high school mates, but, you know, the people around you from from actually finding out more of Jesus, about Jesus, that there's these obstacles. And so through this fall, we're addressing different obstacles to faith, obstacles such as the one we're looking at next week, religion does more harm than good, which you might actually be surprised to find out what I have to say about that one. How about the Bible is corrupt and untrustworthy? Or maybe I can't believe in a God who allow this kind of suffering. These are some of the common obstacles, and we'll be addressing even more. I think there's still there's a slip in your bulletin which outlines upcoming topics and the dates we're addressing them. Our, our, through this series, we have two goals. One goal is to help you have better conversations with your friends around some of their obstacles to faith. And I'm encouraging you to have the conversation, to talk about it, to bring it out, and to address it and do that together in a, in a spirit of friendship. So I want to help you have more confidence in that conversation, but also to help you overcome obstacles. Here at the Erickson Covenant Church, we have people across the faith spectrum. 
And so some of you have been connecting here, and you're not yet sure about Jesus. In fact, there might be some obstacles preventing you from really getting a good look at who Jesus is. And I'm hoping through this series we can get around some of those obstacles in your faith journey as well. There's so much at stake here. Jesus is alive. He's real. He's life-changing. And yet, there's obstacles in the way. He wants people to know him. He wants you to know him. He wants your friends to know him. But these obstacles can prevent people from even seeing Jesus. And that's a shame to me. It drives me crazy. The idea that people wouldn't even be able to, uh, to, to meet Jesus, wouldn't be able to find out more about him because there's some kind of obstacle in the way that shouldn't be there, drives me crazy, which is why we're doing this series. I hope it drives you crazy too. We want to do our part to clear away these obstacles to faith. And one of these obstacles is this idea that faith in God and good science are at odds, that science makes faith stupid. Well, in order to really get into this, we need to do some some myth-busting work first. We're going to break some myths, I hope, very quickly. I won't be able to delve in deep, but but you can delve in deeper on your own if you'd like. But I'm going to bust four myths and then um, talk about some practical advice for how we can have this conversation. And then if we have time, we'll have a little bit of question and answer, right? Isn't that exciting? You love it, right? But we haven't done it for so long that there's been dead silence the last time. Last time, nobody asked a question. It was tragic. Made me look dumb up here. And so I'm priming you. If we have time, we'll take a few questions. So think about that. First, let's bust some myths, okay? Myth number one, that faith inhibits science. This is the idea that that someone who believes in God, believes in a God who acts in history, a God who answers prayer, that, that somehow science would be hindered. This is a complete myth. We're going to see more of this unfold. Here's something that might be astonishing to you. The historical fact is this. Modern science as we know it, the scientific revolution, the things that have happened scientifically in the last few hundred years, has been shown, proven, historical, that it was actually birthed in the cradle of Christian theology. Rodney Stark, in his groundbreaking, amazing book called For the Glory of God, he explores how modern science was born only one time in history and only in one place, medieval Christian Europe. And rather than science and faith just being sort of okay and rambling along in sort of this weird relationship, Stark shows conclusively how modern science would not even exist if it were not for the Christian faith. The myth that faith, in particular Christian faith, somehow prevents or inhibits science, it just doesn't bear out historically, and it doesn't bear out today. What was it, very briefly, that about the Christian faith that made the difference. Well, Christianity, unlike Buddhism, unlike Hinduism, unlike Greek thinking, Roman thinking, believed in a God who was rational, a God who was responsive, a God who was dependable, and a God who was all-powerful. And with this belief firmly rooted in the Scripture, firmly rooted in their worship practice, with this belief that this is the kind of God who made the world, they believed that The world was also rational. The world was also lawful. It it followed rules. It was stable. It, in that sense, mimicked and followed its creator. And as a result, this is a world that we could explore. We could quantify it. We could understand it. We could do that for God's glory and for neighbor's good. There's lots of books you can read on this if you want to explore it further. If you want to raise an objection... If you want to, you know, we can do that during question time, but you also, I can, I can point you in some other directions if you'd like to read further on this. But hear this. The idea that faith somehow inhibits or prevents science is just false. Faith in 
the creator or a creator leads people to a greater appreciation and understanding of creation. It did in the past, and it continues to do so today. That's myth number one. Myth number two, faith and science are at war. As you can already guess, based on what I've said about the origins of science, this is false. Science and faith are not in conflict. Rather, they support one another in the pursuit of truth. But the idea of a war between science and faith has been very popular. Fundamentalists on both sides of the fence, the atheistic fundamentalists and some religious fundamentalists, they continue to sell the idea that there's a war, a conflict going on between faith and science. But it's a hollow idea. When you read the history It's largely been fabricated. In this particular case, historically, a lot of these have been fabricated by atheists who find the very idea of faith in God and people with faith in God practicing science, they find it crazy. They find it reprehensible. And so they want to do their best to discredit faith whenever they got a chance. And so history got rewritten. Many of the stories that you and I have been told, you know, we get told that... Didn't Columbus Day just pass? We get told that religious flat earthers opposed the innovative Columbus, who was the only one around that knew that the earth was was round and not flat. That is crazy. Christian scholars had taught that the world was round for hundreds and hundreds of years. Everyone in the room knew the earth was round. The reason why um, some clerics and some some, uh, educated people opposed Columbus is because he thought the earth was about this big, and they knew it was huge. They opposed him because they didn't believe he was prepared for the journey he was going to go on. We've been told that Europe had descended into a barbaric dark age. In fact, the dark ages often could span up to a thousand years of the history. We're told that this dark ages was dark and brutal until the Enlightenment had come, meaning Greek and Roman thought had been revitalized. The the Enlightenment had come and people finally shucked their silly, superstitious beliefs when the actual fact of history tells nothing of that story. The so-called dark ages were actually profoundly lighter than we were ever led to believe. Did you know that during the so-called dark ages, women had far more rights than they got later? Do you know that within Christian lands, at least, slavery was almost or virtually extinct? During these so-called dark ages... There were networks of scholarship. That's when many of the great universities were born. There was incredible technological innovation flourishing. It wasn't until the revival of Roman law in the Enlightenment that women lost rights and that slavery took on a new and more evil form. But in an effort to discredit all of this, another story was told, a story of dark times, a story of great superstition of the church running around stomping all over anyone who would think of anything scientific. And the truth is exactly the opposite. It was devout Christians doing the science, good science, all the way along. Yes, there were some conflicts between certain people. But if you dive into the history, you find out not only were the conflicts not as serious as you thought, you often find out there were, oh, big surprise, personalities involved. People were jerks back then too. However, older atheists like Thomas Huxley um, and modern-day atheists like Richard Dawkins, they refuse to believe, often even when they're faced with it, refuse to believe that people of faith can do good science. And so they fabricate or continue to fan the flames of a war that doesn't exist in an effort to deny the compatibility of faith and science. And the truth is, many Christians buy into the myth. We hear the stories. I was having a great conversation. Ethan and I have a lot of great scientific conversations. I love the way Ethan loves science and pursues that. 
And so every day he's bringing me something new that I'm blowing my mind. And I ask permission to, I ask permission to tell the story. So this week he asked me the question out of the blue. Do you, how much further along would we be scientifically if the church had not been so oppressive to scientists, to science? So I said, Ethan, I hope you're coming on Sunday. <laughs> uh, but what, I, what, I, what we, talk, we then went and talked about is how easy it is for us as Christians to buy into that story, to buy into that myth and then perpetuate that myth. And so we had a great conversation about some of the things we're even talking about today. We've often retold those false stories and we've locked ourselves into positions that are combative rather than conversational. As a result, there's Christians. I grew up in a, in a, in a setting where all scientists and science was viewed suspiciously, was viewed with, with real, real tentative, uh, real tentative um, position. And that further solidifies this obstacle that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Science and faith are not at war with each other. Don't let anyone sell you that line. Myth number three, that true scientists don't have faith. Well, this is becoming more obvious. I think you can see where this is going. Contrary to what some of the new atheists suggest, many, many, many practicing scientists are people of faith. In fact, a survey that was done early in the 1900s and then later, just just recently, they, they, they tried the survey asking the exact same question. They found that roughly half of the practicing scientists in the United States had not only faith in a, just a, a God who's out there, but a God who answers prayer. Half. And the stats never changed in a hundred years. These are the practicing scientists. And there's many practicing scientists who are followers of Jesus. But who's who of science as we look at the scientific revolution were often people of faith. But I thought it would be helpful for us to hear it firsthand. So I want to show you a four-minute clip from our first Alpha session just on Wednesday. It's a clip. It starts with Nicky Gumbel, the founder of Alpha, and he's listing some of the, the pioneers of modern science and, uh, who are devout Christians. And then it goes to the story of Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, and his story of coming to faith in Jesus. I think it'll help bust this third myth. Let's watch it. It's true. One former professor of history at Oxford University described the resurrection as the best attested fact in history. I hadn't realized how many of the pioneers of modern science were believers. Descartes, Newton, Kepler, Galileo, Locke, Copernicus, Faraday, Kelvin, Pasteur. Francis Collins, one of the greatest scientists of our time, was director of the Human Genome Project, mapping the three billion letters in the human DNA, considered by many to be the most significant scientific undertaking of our time. He describes how he encountered Jesus and came to believe in the truth of Christianity. Well, in the home where I grew up, uh, faith was not something that was talked about very much. Uh, my father was a professor of drama, my mother a playwright. Uh, when I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. 
But then I ended up in, in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith, she turned to me, and I had been silent, and she looked at me quizzically, and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately, I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity. Because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that, in fact, given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible, uh, and many other things, including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe, something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician. That brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as a person who was historically extremely well documented. That was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history, and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to, a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise resulted in my conversion. That's a difference. That's myth number three. Myth number four, faith and science support opposite conclusions about God. That's the final myth we need to bust. Now, don't get me wrong. People have said that this happens. In fact, it comes from a lot of different quarters. Some of the most virulent atheists, guys like I've mentioned, Dawkins, maybe Hitchens, have used science to make certain proclamations or conclusions about God, his existence or non-existence or whatever. But whenever they do that, and this is super important for you to realize, whenever they do that, at the very moment they do that, they have stopped doing science. They've moved on. They've moved beyond the realm of science, and they're now making philosophical assumptions. They're now expressing faith based on things that can't be proved or disproved from the facts. And in fact, a host of other scientists 
including atheists themselves, are constantly telling some of those new atheists to stop doing that. See, science provides a means for understanding how the world works, but science can't tell you why the world exists. Science can point to a designer for sure, but it can't reveal the mind or the intention or the heart of the designer. Science can expand our horizons, but we need revelation directly from God to know who God is and why he's made us. Stephen Hawking, one of our more brilliant or maybe most brilliant scientists, has admitted that, quote, science may solve the problem of how the universe began, but it cannot answer the question, why does the universe bother to exist? Another man named John Lennox gave this illustration. I thought it was great, and so I want to read it for you. He says this, Suppose I wheel in the most magnificent cake ever seen. And I had in front of me various fellows of every academic and learned society in the world, and I picked the top men, and I tell them to analyze the cake for me. So out steps the world-famous nutritionist. And he talks about the balance of the various foods that form this cake. Then a leading biochemist analyzes the cake at a biochemical level. Then a chemist says, well, yes, of course, but now we must get down to the very basic chemicals that form this. Then a physicist comes on and says, well, yes, these people have told you something, but you really need to get down to the electrons and the protons and the quarks. And last of all, the stage is occupied by the mathematician. And he says, ultimately, you need to understand the fundamental equations governing the motion of all the electrons and protons in this cake. And they finish, and it was a magnificent analysis of the cake. And then I turn around to them and say, ladies and gentlemen, I've just got one more question for you. Tell me why the cake was made. And there in front of them stands Aunt Matilda, who made the cake. It's only when the person who made the cake is prepared to disclose why she's made it that they'll ever understand why. No amount of scientific analysis, however exhaustive, however detailed, can answer that question. And then Aunt Matilda in the end says, I'll let you out of your misery. I made the cake for my nephew, Johnny. It's his birthday next week. End quote. Science really is amazing. And the discoveries of working scientists continue to stagger us with all that we can know and how much we have yet to discover. But no amount of science is going to lead us to understand why we exist and what the purpose of the world is and what God's desire is for that. Science and faith don't come to opposite conclusions about God, but they can point toward him. These are four of the myths that I hope have been able to somewhat shift. I recognize there's lots more that can be said about them. And if if you want to dig further into some of those things, I'm really happy to have a further conversation about that and maybe point you to some further reading. But let me give you very quickly some practical advice for how we would move from having what would be, I think, unhelpful combat, particularly around some of these questions, to a really healthy conversation. A couple of tips, and then we'll move to questions. First, don't mistreat people for what they believe. I think that's going to be a theme through our whole series this fall. That instead of reacting defensively, instead of getting all up in arms, even if people think something that you believe is wrong, let's be open to hearing what they think. Let's ask more questions. Let's show interest in them and why they think what they do and how they've come to the conclusions they've come to. Let's actually learn from them. As we've explored these myths, the last thing I would want us to do is to now take these myths and begin berating people for believing them. The fact is, 
we've all probably had taken turns in believing at least some of them. The way forward is more gentle and respectful than that. And that's, again, coming back to the passage we looked at last week that got us all going. We give a reason for the hope that we have, but we do it with gentleness and with respect. We don't need to get defensive about poor conclusions people make, just as we hope others aren't defensive about our poor conclusions. Rather, we can ask questions. And I think in the way even that we respond, we can show people that science and faith are not exclusive. They're not at war, but they're complementary. Second, I encourage you, especially if this is an obstacle of faith for you or this is an obstacle of faith for someone around you, but I think in general, to cultivate your own interest in the workings of the world and be open to the scientific discoveries both in the past and in the present to help us understand God's world more. Science and scientists are not the enemy. In fact, many are people of faith who are seeking a greater understanding of God's world. Third, let's just agree to reject this notion that there's a war going on between science and religion. Even when fundamentalists of whatever stripe, atheist, Christian, otherwise, try to keep it going. As they are fanning the flames, let's just douse it with water. Let's reject that, not only in our mind, but also in our posture, in our conversation. Let's refuse to let it turn into a combat. Keep the peace and to love the person and to remember, as we will say all along, that keeping the long-term relationship is of far greater importance than winning any kind of short-term argument. And then fourth, I think we need to continuously express wonder at creation and gratitude to the Creator. We need to do that with our lives, do that in the way that we speak, the way that we worship, the way that we think. We truly do live in a wonderful world. And the wonder is not only the path of faith, but it can also be the path to faith for others. Those are just some, I think, advice for us as we engage those obstacles. But are there any questions that you would like to, to throw out where we can hone a little bit? We've got a couple minutes, maybe three, four, five minutes. If you have a question, raise your hand, and Ethan will bring around a microphone. That's so it makes it on the podcast. Dave has a question. Yeah, I have a, a daughter and, and son-in-law that believe strongly in the theory of evolution. And they've taught their kids that there is no such thing as God because it's all about evolution. Right. Yes. And they're not open to discussion at all about that. And I would like to know how to bridge that because science is doing tremendous work mm-hmm. on proving that there was a Christ. Right. And there had great strides in that but they're teaching that in school this evolution thing Mm -hmm. so how do you bridge that gap great thank you dave and i just want to say that i mean the fact that you're you're in relationship with them i mean when it comes right down to it the question isn't about evolution is it when it comes right down to it it's about their openness to god their openness to what what god and there's a resistance there and so i think you and i've talked about that the wisdom of Staying in that relationship, loving them, praying for them. So there's all there's all of that. But I do want to. Right. So I think I so two questions there. One would be you may not be able to bridge that conversation with your with your kids right now, right? Because if there's so when we talk about 
having these conversations about these obstacles, we talked about sometimes there's, there's great resistance and we're not maybe able to engage that. So there's times where we just acknowledge, I can't engage this because it will cause a war, <laughs> a war that shouldn't be happening. But, you know, and so to preserve that relationship, we just continue to pray for, for that opportunity and we maybe don't have a war around that. But the second thing I want to say is going to be a little more controversial, okay? Here's the truth. There are Christians all across the spectrum from full belief in evolution right to a younger six-day liberal creationism. And then through to day age, and there's quite a variety, quite a spectrum of belief on that. Why do I raise that? Some of you are ready to nail me to a cross right now. I mention that for this reason. Sometimes we have to step back and say, okay, what really matters here? Because you know what? I have lots of conversations with people who are very committed to the theory of evolution, as you put it. The, the, the thing is, is, okay, but you still have to talk to me about how it got started. You still have to talk to me how, how in the world did life come out of nothing? How in the world did life begin? How did an inanimate thing become animate, right? That's still, and so what I say is, often, is instead of making the fight about something that you cannot win, because there's at a basic level, there's a difference there. We still, and I'm not, I'm not sure if your kids be open to this, Dave, but we can still have a conversation about how, how, do, how do you think it all began then? Like, who got it going? Like, who? Even that, Dave. Who, who flicked the Big Bang? Like, who started the bang in the first place? Because if you, push, if you keep pushing back, it still begs the question. Because at a certain point, you have to admit, they will have to, you know, I have conversations with this, they have to say, well, I guess it happened, just happened, out of nothing. So you're still, you're still coming around to the question of who got it started. And I'm, I don't really feel like us, you know, fighting about whether we should take a greater stance or a less stance or how we should do that. What I want to argue is, whoever you're talking with, the question can still go back to, who got it going? Who started it? Who created it? And, and the Christians I know across the spectrum of, of belief in how God created the world, all believe God created the world, but how he did it, there's a spectrum of belief within the Christian family. We know this. They all would say, yeah, how it's done is, you know, uh, subject for debate, good scientific debate, lots of rigorous conversation of the, the, the validity of certain things. We're all over that. But at the end of the day, it's still a question of, do we believe in God the creator? And evolution, big bang, six day, whatever, it doesn't matter. All of that still has, they still have to answer that question. That question is the same to every position of science. And so this is part of when I say, let's not freak out about a particular theory or a particular idea. Let's remember that at the end of the day, it's all about, well, okay, so that's how you believe that's how it happened, but it still doesn't answer why it happened. It still doesn't answer how it got started. It still doesn't answer the question of who's behind it all. And many Christians across the spectrum would say, that's where we all agree. God, the creator of heaven and earth. And so we can agree on that and continue to point people to Jesus. I'll say this and then I'll take if there's another question. The, the, the thing I want to urge here is that we don't lose sight of the main point. Um, I know people that have spent literally decades arguing with someone about the particulars of a theory, but aren't spending the time to say, let's point them to Jesus. Let's do whatever we can to help remove an obstacle so they can actually 
get into the gospel stories. They can actually begin to meet Jesus face to face instead of getting hung up on something else that ultimately won't, won't answer one way or the other. Let's continue to do what we can to point them to Jesus. And there's more we can talk about on this stage. Brooke, good to have you here, Brooke. How do you deal with the idea of um, when you're discussing science, things that really don't sit well, like um, genetic testing or genetic, um, you know, selection or things that for us or I guess fundamentally would be something that it's like we're messing with God. Right. And how would I have a conversation about that and still maintain the integrity and honor science? Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks, Brooke. I mean, the whole question of medical ethics and biomedical ethics is a huge area and a huge area of conversation, right? An area that we need to engage in. Because actually, as people who fundamentally believe that every human being, all eight, eight, what was the line in that song, Olin? Eight billion. I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one a child you died to save. And we believe that everyone's created in the image of God. We need to engage that because from a very foundational level, we believe that human life has value in the sight of God. So we need to engage it. So we're going to disagree on stuff. I hope nothing I've said would suggest we aren't going to have disagreements. My hope is that we can engage that conversation fruitfully as opposed to <laughs> we all just get mad, stomp off, and rant on Facebook for a while about how bad that person was. Um, somehow engage fruitfully in the conversation. So I actually think, and I'm not the person to talk a lot about this, but I actually think Christians at the table with medical ethics, is a, it's a crucial area of not only conversation, but we bring something to the table that a pure secularist or a pure naturalist who thinks we're all just, you know, you and me, baby ain't nothing but mammals kind of thing, uh, that they have nothing to add to that conversation. So we do. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because we're rooted in a view of who people are that is images of God. And so we have so much to add to that. So we're going we're to disagree. I hope that we can have the kind of conversations that we're, we're disagreeing, not just reactionary, but thought through. Thought through biblically, thought through scripturally, thought through ethically and philosophically so that we can really come to the table in, a, in an engaged way. And some of these are difficult conversations, but they're, they're real and we need to to engage them. I think we can. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to stop it there for time's sake. But uh, there's more conversations to be had. So if you want to dig further, if you want to read more, if you want to hit me after, you can do that. Well, not the hit me part. but The truth is, science and faith are beautifully complementary. And as people of faith have practiced science, they believe that they're coming to know more fully the Creator Himself. And what's more, they believed that they were actually giving glory to God by fully using the minds that God has given us to understand the world he's made. And, and somehow, together, we're able to join in creation's praise. You know, Psalm 19 is, a, is one of the many passages of Scripture that talk about how God's created world gives glory to him. Here's what we hear in Psalm, the start of Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. 
They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. All of creation truly proclaims God's glory. And we get in on that praise. And I think we even begin to hear more of that praise as we understand the world that God has made. And on Thanksgiving, here's my tie, we express our gratitude to the God who made this amazing world and invites us to know Him and to understand His work and to understand His world. And we do thank God for scientists, for pioneers, for researchers and explorers who have continued to give God glory through their work, even the ones who weren't acknowledging it. We thank God for his amazing creation, which he's gifted to us and into our stewardship. And he has called us to rule over as loving caretakers, which includes the development of good science and good technology. We thank God for his gift of creation and ultimately his gift of Jesus, who became stunningly and surprisingly part of his very creation so that we could know him fully. What science can't reveal, God revealed in Christ his love for us, his forgiveness in Jesus, his promise of a full life, both now and forever. Remember my friend Eric? We continue to talk about science together and faith and Jesus. We discussed at length the obstacle that was preventing him from following Jesus. I gave him books to read. I actually gave him the same book that that pastor. It must be a thing that pastors hand out to skeptics. Um, I gave the same book that was mentioned, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, for him to read. In fact, I read it with him. We talked about it. We went to scientific lectures together. We discussed theology. We continued to meet over scripture studies. And then slowly over the months that followed, we found our way around this obstacle to faith in Jesus. And Eric began to explore more of who Jesus is. This Jesus who created this amazing world and invited Eric into relationship with him, to discover more about him and more about the world that he made. And with that obstacle gone, Eric was now able to follow Jesus. Isn't that the point? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you do everything.